0: This
1: is Duke University. My name is Greg Dees. I'm the faculty director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship here at Fuqua. And today I have the distinct honor to introduce a good friend of mine, uh, Drew Billamoria. Drew uh, is, uh, as many of you may already know, a serial social entrepreneur. She has started uh, many ventures. She's also a, a professor at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, so she's got this uh, one one sort of foot or toe uh, out of academia, but um, but a lot of very exciting experience um, those of you who uh, know david bornstein's book how to change the world social entrepreneurs and the power of new ideas will recognize Giroux. i think chapter seven uh, is something like that is jeru's chapter about Childline, which was one of the ventures that she started in, in india uh, to provide um, uh, a helpline for children who might be in trouble might be abused might be lost or homeless Um, And this spread by the time uh, she was done with it to, what, about 70 cities, is that something in that range in India? Um, She then started uh, Child Helpline International to take this uh, concept uh, internationally. Now um, she's launched a, a new venture called Aflatoon. Child Savings International, which is about uh, financial and social education uh, for children. I'll let her tell you uh, much more about that. The reason that she's here is we're ha- we're ha- hosting the advisory council on uh, on the impact. I guess social impact advisory council for Afflatoon. Uh Here we we started yesterday. Today we'll wrap up our our, our meetings. But. Um, if you'll join me in providing a warm welcome for Jeru, I'd like to get her up here. Jeru, please.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Greg. What Greg didn't say is the first time I met him was at the Schwab event. And I said, oh, I have read you." Because while researching for taking Child Lying on, looking at things, you know, Greg is the first person who features because you read what he's written on scale up and on a lot of things. Before I start talking, I would actually like to introduce the people who have come with me. Because like Greg mentioned, we are having an advisory committee meeting over here at Duke which we thought this is our first meeting, and honestly, since we are looking at scale-up, impact, etc., we thought having it over here would be the best thing, and Greg offered it, so we sort of jumped on it and took it on. I'd like to introduce some of the members of our group who have been here, because other than me, they've been doing the most amazing work, and you will probably want to meet and interact with them. John Elkinton. John Elkinton is our chair. And um, John coined the term and the concept triple bottom, triple bottom line and all of you know all about it. So he's the big guru actually all would be really, really interested in knowing and meeting and Yes, John, do you want to say? Just say
2: you're giving me
3: Get on
0: the <laughs> <laughs> No? So so John is our chair and he's there and I think it would be really nice if you all would like to. Greg is also a member of the committee, obviously. You can't do or think scale-up and without him, at least in my mind. So he's very much there and then we were talking about how we could work with the Center of Social Entrepreneurship to look at different scale-up models and to look at things. As we move down, sitting at the back actually, they can come up front is... Sarah, uh, Sarah Olson, you know, Um, Sarah uh, works with uh, social return on investment, which is the the tool for social entrepreneurs to measure impact and uh, do things. And the first time I met Sarah was in 2005, and she told me about it, and it really, really clicked. She's an amazing combination of having done her master's in both social work and in business management. So for those of you who are looking at it, Sarah has this whole thing. She can tell you all about the new way to impact assessment through SROI. And then we have Lou Mandel. Lou, I met him for the first time, but he's someone I had read about, so again, of it. And he's done a lot of work which will help us in our understanding of Aflatoon, because he's done a lot of work on jumpstart in terms of financial education in the US, what works, what doesn't, and how we as Aflatoon and organization can take it forward. And last, but not the least, a very, very valuable member of our team, Helena, Helena Jones. And Helena, like many of y'all may aspire, uh, wanted to work with the corporate sector, uh, or rather she worked with them for 10 years looking at brands, etc. And then said, okay, time's up. I'm going to move and joined Aflatun. And is going to help us develop the Aflatoon brand. See, I'm telling Aflatun Aflatun so you all will wonder what it is when I get to talk. And uh, then we have Namita. And Namita works with uh, John. She's recently joined and more importantly, she's an alumni of the school. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought I'd introduce the people and um, moving. What brought me to this school and what is Aflatoon? I'd like to start with that because that's something which currently really absorbs me and is something that we want to look at. Um, Aflatoon is a fireball from outer space, Um, neither gender-specific nor ethnic-specific, just zooms around gives lots of children across the world lots of Aflatun hugs and uh, talks to children about social and financial education and that's what Aflatun is. What does social and financial education mean? It's talking to children about their values, rights, responsibilities. It is also talking about financial education which is not just giving the theory of finance but making them open savings account, making them do planning and banking, making them do some business, uh, micro-businesses or micro-enterprises. So making children do things to understand about money, to understand about finance, and we believe, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, five years down, I'll be standing here saying I failed, maybe saying we managed to reach some children, but we believe that if children have social and financial education, which has life skills as a very, very strong component, we will be able to work with them to at least break the mindset of poverty. I don't think they can all break the cycle of poverty. We cannot take that whole claim. That's a bit much. But the mindset which goes with it, which makes people stay in the cycle of poverty, which makes people constantly have to... Families don't save, makes people look at it. So we are hoping, and this has come out of my experiences for child Lang, but I'll talk of that later. We are hoping that with children being sufficiently empowered themselves about financial education, about their own selves, having a greater sense of self-worth, they'll start saving, they'll start having higher dreams, they'll start having higher aspirations. And then they will be able to say, okay, I don't wanna stay in poverty, I want to do something, I want to do something different. I can do it in my village. I don't need to run away to the city to do it. I need to be at home and thereby making them probably get out of poverty, at least tackle it. Thereby not being exploited because in rural areas in many, many places, a lot of exploitation comes because people don't know what is simple interest. So they're charged 100% interest. They don't know they're being charged it. So not being exploited both at a financial level and at a social level. So this is what Aflatun is trying to do in a very, very small way. Uh, We are starting, we started with a pilot in 10 countries. We are hoping that by 2010, that's audacious, I've been warned not to say it, but we are hoping that we can initiate a dialogue with 100 countries to take the concept forward, try to touch the lives of a million children in taking this forward by 2010 and the School of Social Entrepreneurship is going to help us with the management models, the structures, and the economic models we need to do and refine to take it forward. No, Greg? Yes? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we are going to be doing. Greg mentioned child lying and the why of it, and I thought I'd start with flatoon and move to child lying. Aflatoon emerged as a concept because after working for ages with uh, street children, I realized that the children who are actually on the streets were more intelligent than most of us. No offense, sorry. They were smarter, they had a ton of entrepreneurial ability, and they really wanted to do something with their lives. So when they ran away, they ran away from an abusive family situation, from poverty, but more importantly, because they had a dream, and they could not find that being fulfilled in their home situations. That's why they ran away. When they came to the streets, most of them hit poverty, they got caught into the whole thing, they got caught into life on the streets, and it was very, very difficult to pull them out. We tried to send them back, but sometimes because of the independence they'd got on the streets, going back meant they returned because the circumstances at home hadn't changed. So what was the big idea? For us, it was, having done child Childline child lying in India responds to 2 million phone calls a year. M- you know, more than 20% of those are street children, but we were not really cracking the problem. Nothing was making us, we did lo- a lot of rescue, a lot of rehabilitation, but were unable to tackle what was at the root. And what we are trying to do with Aflatun is tackle what is at that root and that root is providing a more challenging school environment to the children a more challenging environment where every child can say i don't need to run away to bombay or to hyderabad or to wherever they run away or any part you know any city my village can help me do it i can have my dreams in my village and i think that's what i'm hoping aflatoon can do and i'm hoping can take it forward and we have a huge group to do it. Over here, actually, I would like to pause because I hate going on talking, talking, talking and ask you all if you have any questions which you would like to know because I'd rather have it as an interactive session which is what we discussed also than me sitting over here boring you all after the first 10 minutes on what. And I also want to know who is Uday? Okay. Because Uday worked with child lying in Hyderabad. That's what Matt told me. So. Just wanted. Okay, sorry, any questions, anything which you would like to ask any of us? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I just wanted to know that uh, this concept, is it
4: applicable only to the children who are there in the cities
3: or they're also going to take it it's, to rural
0: areas? It's mainly for rural children. It started with rural areas, it started with rural children. You so
4: are not operating in cities like Bombay
0: or Delhi? Not now. We may move to it, but it's just now in rural and peri-urban areas, yeah. Because that's the way you break the cycle at the root and then move. I also have a request to all the advisory committee members to please chip in, so if you all even have questions to them, to please do that because this is an interactive group and the people who are here also have a lot of wealth of information, so. so Yeah, sorry, Matt, then, yeah. Matt, okay. okay you uh, financial because from my perspective family is more important you're absolutely right. There's a hundred percent enrollment rate for children in schools, especially now because of Millennium Development Goals. So children enroll, but between the ages of six to nine we have between 30 to 40% dropout rate in most countries because the children don't find their education sufficiently relevant, neither do the families, and then there are external <coughs> family circumstances. Uh, so, one of our initial findings of a flatoon clearly show that by having and providing these skills, it is a way of preventing dropouts. Another thing, we were at the World Bank uh, where they clearly also felt that what was happening is that we have universal primary education, but we do not have quality primary education. And any aspect which can go towards quality primary education would be very useful. And Aflaton is, we think, not the only, but one of the ways which looks at uh, quality primary education. And to strengthen this, we are working with UNICEF with what they call child-friendly schools so that children really want to stay on in school and over a period of time, the multiple effect can lead to lesser dropout. But more confident children, both financially and socially. Just to
2: follow-up. Like, when you say financial education, what do you mean? How is a different
0: topic? What is your curriculum? Is it different? It's firstly social and financial education, and I'm repeating the social aspect because we don't just want to teach financial education and Lou will be able to say a ton of research which clearly shows that just teaching financial education is not going to help, it's not going to break break any cycle or any mindset. So the social aspect is knowing about yourself, understanding yourself, understanding your community, self within community rights and responsibilities and the financial aspect is if you have an identity for yourself then what are the basic financial skills you need, which is saving, budgeting, everyone has to do household budgeting, family budgeting, your own university budgeting, planning, which goes with it, and then certain entrepreneurial skill development. So if ever you are unemployed, you at least have certain basic skills to be able to have a livelihood. And that's something I learned from Scree children. They knew how to have an enterprise, whatever they did. Unfortunately, they didn't have the skills to sustain it, so they got exploited. So that's where it comes in from. Matt had a question. Well, I was gonna ask you
4: one of the things I admire about you know, the way you build up child lines. You have to do it in partnership, and I know it's a lot of collaborative efforts. I'm <coughs> curious as you look the scale from 10 countries to 100 countries, what are the um, kind of collaborations that you're looking at to kind of deliver this program to a wider level?
0: Um, we have collaborations at uh, several levels. So at the country level, the primary collaborator would be the education system. Uh, the central banks because we need child-friendly banking policies and NGOs and multilaterals and bilaterals. So these would be the four pillars at the uh, country level. What we are also encouraging in countries is to have advisory groups, so Aflatoon advisory groups, which will be able to make them work together or UNICEF in many countries already has an education group structure. So instead of reinventing a new one, we are saying, please make it one more agenda item for that. Um, These are the key stakeholders at the country level. At the global level, in some ways they are similar, in some ways different. We are working with multilateral agencies, especially UNESCO, ILO, and UNICEF, because these are the three main players. Uh, from the children's segment, we are working with the banking institutions which is IMF, World Bank, Bank of International Settlement, World Savings Bank Institute, so again the second pillar of finance, we are working with key INGOs because they are the ones who have the capacity if they think this concept would work and put it into their programming activities the ripple effect for scale up will be much higher so these are the three core segments and of course Social entrepreneurs themselves, they are part of the NGO structure, but they're the ones whom we can leverage for change. So those mechanisms. And we have a very active portfolio of our stakeholders. So the way we manage countries, we also manage stakeholders in a systematic fashion. Sorry, you had a question. And then, yeah. Uh, how is it all? Are the families of the children incorporated into the program? As you said before, most of these
3: kids are running. And bring families involved. Yeah.
0: I think when we first started, we did not even think of it. So we weren't as smart. So we just started with the schools and went. Uh soon we realized that it was probably a mistake. Uh we should have involved the families or at least let them know about it, because then you have family support. Um so we don't have systematic evidence. So some programs did it, others didn't. What we did find is that uh, where the programs, there was some impact of parental support. And where parental support was le- higher, frequency of saving was higher. So, But if you ask systematically, we haven't done it. It was a mistake that we made and a learning, which we are trying to look at in our current implementation. Yes, Greg. Yeah, Drew, I just want to make sure
1: that we clarify one thing, and I, I don't know that people are confused, so they might be about it. Childline is very different from Afflatoon. So when you were working with Childline, that was in the cities, and it was with kids who have left their families. Afflatoon is working through the schools with kids, many of whom are still with their families. They haven't yet left. Right. So just, I'm just. Yeah, good a couple point, of yeah. Questions, but yeah. Two different target markets. One rural, yeah, one oh. largely urban, um, and one you know in trouble, kids in trouble who have left home in many cases. The other uh, kids who were at home growing up in a rural community um, whose parents could be involved early <clears throat> on. Okay, I guess I got
3: the
1: impression that kids from the rural communities were. Some of the work of that, Yeah, but that's. that's, then, what, that's what <coughs> child what uh, yeah. tra- Childline was trying to intercept. Sorry.
0: Interrupt that cycle. This yeah. is the problem when you have several enterprises in your brain, they are all uh, <laughs> interconnected. but. Essentially, if we look at the flow, uh, child line is with, like he said, street, children, urban, and rehabilitation. Aflatun is rural, school-based, and then so that's the difference. Sorry, you had a question.
1: From your
2: experience and from your successes, as well as from your failures, what do you think are the main skills that a social entrepreneur should have to succeed eventually
3: in his career?
0: stubbornness <laughs> sorry it's not a skill but maybe a trait because and i mean stubbornness because there's persistence which you have to do because more often than not you're told no especially in the initial stages even so be a child lang where i was laughed out uh, by almost everybody they said no street child will ever pick up the phone and call when I said we have to take the India model to other economically developing countries for Child Health Bank International, and I was told I was being very ridiculous in thinking that what worked in India could ever work in Africa. Well, we are in 20 countries, but everyone said nothing doing it won't work. And similarly now with Haflatun, where I think the team gets a lot of knockdowns. But then through that, there are also supporters. So the next thing and the next most important trait is always looking at the bright side of everything. Because for every cloud, there's a silver lining. And I think it's finding those people who are your silver lining and creating that support structure, like the people who are over here. John, Greg, who've been with me since, I never knew whether I was coming or going and have been supporting. Helena wants to add something, I can see. Yeah, I may mean, have the
3: privilege of uh, working with uh, Darif for about the last three months, but there's a, there's a really great phrase which me sums up, Between um, social entrepreneurs and other approaches to development work or social change, which is, you've probably heard the adage, which is, you know, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. For me, social entrepreneurs don't stop until they have revolutionised everything about the fishing industry. (coughs) So it's that next step. And it's that kind of belief and passion and capability that through actually what are quite insightful, simple interventions, you can have huge, huge societal change, coupled with um, a belief in astonishingly ambitious targets. Whether or not you can actually deliver those astonishingly ambitious targets, you shoot for those targets. Because if you shoot for those targets, you'll come close. If you don't start by shooting for those targets, you'll come close to the less ambitious targets. So for me, as a a newcomer to this sector, those would be two of the things that, from my perspective, start to sum up what makes a successful um, social entrepreneur can really, really affect change at all, but
0: also on a scalable basis. So I just wanted to give you a perspective from a newcomer to
3: the, the areas. John wanted to say something. Well, I think
2: there a question here, but just very quickly. I mean, one of the dangers about this field is that it's in it's danger of becoming a celebrity culture, like everything else that we see in the world. And, and in Giroud, you're part of a bunch of different initiatives. There's the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, the Skoll Foundation. Uh, Schwab Foundation founded by Klaus and Jose Schwab, the founded World Economic Forum. Scott Foundation by Jess Schwab, co-founded eBay. More social and more people companies. are sliding into this area. More and more of them are, are, are almost turning to the same group of um, social entrepreneurs and, and wanting to spotlight them. It's almost like sort of Victorian gentlemen that went around the world collecting rare animals. <laughs> Thanks! <laughs> All Should I give the dog leash now and be late? to build up their own menagerie. But you, you were saying this morning that you were slightly worried that you saw in some social entrepreneurs now. it's not that they're, that they're, they're all becoming Donald Trumps, but that, that, that there's something coming into their psyche which you were uncomfortable with. Now, you can ask the question about what makes an kind of effective uh, social entrepreneur, but where do you see the risks in this? I mean, we know you're all glorious people, but where could this go wrong?
0: I think this is what I was trying to take when we were talking this morning is moving away from the individual to the team. I think no social entrepreneur could ever do anything without the teams they have. I Means I be it Child Line, be it C H I, be it Aflatan, the most amazing teams because, you know, they are the people who make it happen. And I think moving away from the individuals to the systems and the structures which bring about the change is I think which is more important and what we were saying is documenting the methodology which goes into it so it becomes not individual specific but that becomes system specific we all learn management models we learn theories of management you know we what scale up model this but when it comes to social entrepreneurs it moves to being the individual who is scaling up as compared to the individual use this management model for scaling this up so somewhere the link needs to for me move away from this group of people to the management models the theories which take it forward so that it doesn't become a cult, which we were talking about, which is really, really scary. And to be able to look at and having the team, you know. I'm always talking about the team everywhere, wherever I go, because I think, who are you without the people who are with you? And I just don't mean the immediate team working with you, it's the people, the advisory committees that you have, your partners who work with you, you know, the whole gamut, the family, that. NGO term network, but I hate the word network. I think it's the family which goes with that whole process. there too. Yeah. yeah um,
4: there is this increasing criticism for in the social sector, for uh, especially from the private sector, about its, uh, I guess, lack of discipline and or lack of execution, or because of the lack of competition. So and they're saying that there's a speed issue in terms of getting things done, and there has to be a lot of consensus building. And is that true? And if that's true, how do you combat that?
0: I, I didn't get the last okay.
4: question. Sorry. The, um, okay, the, OK. I'm going to raise a question. Basically, for social, for social uh, you know, the social sectors, the organizations, there's a criticism for them for their not getting things done fast enough, because especially as fast as the private sectors because it's more of a consensus building and, and there's lack of competition in terms of economically. So is that true? And if that's true how you combat that?
0: I think let's look at the corporate sector and let's not generalize. In the corporate sector there are companies which have 70%, 100%, 140% growth rates. We also know in the life cycle of a company when a company is young or it's going to go to the market then there's a steeper growth rate a company which has been there for 100 years will have 2% growth and be happy with that unless it's having a shakeover and a turn. So there are, there are, different, uh, there are different growth rates of different companies. I think this nonprofit sector is also very, very similar and i think there are differing growth rates for different enterprises i think social enterprises per se and social entrepreneurs would be the ones who definitely do look at scale up and higher growth rates and higher returns on investments which is why what sarah is working on and is developing is the whole profession of social return on investment which intuitively anchors with a lot of social uh, entrepreneurs so that is something which is there so i can't say it's one or the other it's it's like different companies, so yeah, different
2: rules on that, because I think it's an excellent question, but, but, but what we have to recognize and acknowledge in what social entrepreneurs do is that they address market failures. So actually, there, there is not an opportunity space. It is drawing large numbers of people who are absolutely passionate to do the same thing. Very often, social entrepreneurs are described by their families, by their colleagues, by others as crazy. I mean, Muhammad Yunus of the Grameen Bank once said to a couple of us that, uh, you know, social entrepreneurs at their best are 70% crazy. They do stuff, so, that most of the people can't imagine doing So They need competition, but in the sense, they're creating the field as, the, as they do what they do. So they're actually creating <coughs> conditions in which hopefully competition will build, and that will then drive the quality that you uh, see. But very often they're going to spaces that no one else wants to be anywhere near um, Thank you, good thank you. A sector where you see
4: a lot of competition and it's kind of difficult to get various non-profits or even other governmental agencies like the police or whatever to come together and work towards, it's a new challenge to get them to work
2: together. And I think that Thailand has been able to very successfully overcome that barrier and you worked with the police, the state government, and also a lot of other NGOs. How do you
3: do that?
0: Just by believing in people. Um, No, it's really as simple as that. Strategically, like I was even talking for Aflatun, if you don't have a partnership approach, you cannot grow. So I think it's drawing, listing what are the strengths each person can bring to the table, Um, rather than just bashing up the police and saying they are horrible, if you brought them on board and that policemen could become police cha-chas, like police uncles, so making them the friend of the street child, you're bringing their strength on by looking at their positive. Similarly, the state government is always told it never does anything, but by bringing on the state government's role, which is having the largest amount of unreserved funds. Central has a lot of reserve funds. States have much more. You sort of tap on that and say you have to contextualize. It brings about that whole aspect. NGOs. Each has a separate skill, so if you draw and say, this is your skill, it's believing in people and believing in the skills they have to be able to put it together, so that's one thing, but it's also rigorously looking at what management model would work, build this work, how it would work, what have been the successes and failures, and then, so it's, uh, you know, it's not just all heart; it's also looking very strategically at what would cause impact and taking that forward.
3: Um, I have two questions about measurement and metrics. Um, one is related to what you were just addressing on building partnerships and getting other people to come become involved in your cause. At what points along the way did you need to be able to bring something a little more formal in terms of the metrics that you were trying to achieve or that you had achieved in order to get people involved um, in your in your cause? Maybe some of the bigger government agencies
0: and whatnot. I think as Having been an academic, to me, documentation and research is probably one of the most important uh, keys in a nonprofit. It's never too soon. So even for Aflatun, some of the base matrices were prepared the day the project. So we were doing our strategy plan in our pilot phase, and we had indices and indicators of success. So it was almost at the same time of the thinking phase. And even now as we move, because as the pilots come to an end and we are looking at a scale-up instead of waiting till the end, one of the first things we did based on everyone's very busy schedules uh, we had is this impact advisory committee meeting to look at these very issues. And I think it's never, never too soon. It should be more and more, and you know, in a sense, if nonprofits started documenting the impact more and more, then people would see the impact they have had and not question time. And so, but how did you, quote,
3: document the impact when you were new? I mean, you, you had not had the impact yet. But then you
0: create the impact indicators. So we had an impact grid flow for Aflaton on what would be our key impact indicators, which later became our first publication for Children and Change um, way back in June 2005. That is even before the organization had officially launched in the pilot countries, because thinking was if you're going to 10 countries, then you need to have the grid on what is going to be the selection criteria of the 10 countries, the selection criteria of the uh, partner NGOs, what is going to be success of the selection of the right type of partner NGOs, and if you don't put down all those bullet points at the end of the time, how can you measure that? So it's it sort of goes in right from day one, into your planning process so that it is uh, structured. And I think that's one of the reasons why social entrepreneurs also have a higher scale-up rate because they do look at some of these indices quite systematically. Some don't, but I think by and large, many do. Right.
3: And the second part was just, and so what have been some of the metrics? What, what are you trying to?
0: Um, for Raflatun if we look at the matrices, uh, it basically was, uh, economic matrices would be savings, frequency of savings, frequency of withdrawals because that shows the mindset, values in terms of understanding of rights, community responsibilities, community projects, planning and budgeting in terms of uh, the mindset towards being able to plan the, the what's wrong, yeah. when you've done a project, how. So we've got matrices and pretty detailed ones for each element and of course just what is your target population? If you had targeted to reach 10,000 children, have you reached 10,000 children? So what is the difference? And that helps because what we did from our first pilot, we were able to, so now Helena, who's this wizard Excel is helping us develop modeling documents so that we've reached an average of um, these many children. This was the financial input. If we continue even at this baseline rate, these will be the number of children we will reach if we have a lower impact by 25%, this, if we look at a 50% sustained growth rate, this. So when we are giving our number projections, we are not talking like this through the hair. We are actually looking at certain base formulas, and then we have theoretical assumptions that this set of assumptions worked, this failed. So at the end of three years, when we renew what we've done, we have a basis on which we are doing it. And I think that's very important. Every business does it, and I think more and more social entrepreneurs are doing it. We have to, we have to prove ourselves systematically. Sorry, you, you can. Yes, I was wondering
2: if you had experience with that in
1: Latin
0: America? Uh, we started with Argentina, uh, and uh, we chose Argentina because, of course, the banking system had collapsed, so we wanted that if it works there, it may work in other places. Um, in Argentina, we started with an Ashoka Fellow, and a Schwab fellow, and uh, again, that's part of our criteria. We made one mistake in Argentina, which was also our learning. We followed not our training tree, but a direct approach. And we realized that the project was very expensive. We reached a thousand children a thousand two hundred children at the cost of 50,000 euros whereas all our other projects had reached a thousand two hundred children at the cost of probably ten or fifteen thousand But it was very useful for us because everyone cons and the quality of our understanding of the project has been similar so the impact through the training tree versus the direct intervention has been almost the same. So it was an expensive mistake, if you call it a mistake because you can't in that sense, but it cost a lot, but we learned that we can get the same impact otherwise. And now we are in Peru We've just had a contextualization meeting in Peru. We have initiated dialogue with Colombia through another Ashoka and Schwab fellow, Martin Butte. We are working in Paraguay. Uh, We have finished contextualization in Dominican Republic. Uh, We are working with uh, Mex in uh, Mexico. So, Banamex, sorry. So, yeah, we are working in quite a few of the countries and we also have dialogues with some others. Thank you. Anything else? Any other questions? Yeah. No? Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah. now I can go.
4: We're, we're here, you know, our Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship is kind of a strategic planning process right now, and we're, we're in an interesting context, and we have a dean who's very supportive of looking at the intersection of business and society. And as we look at, at, you know, we have different customers. We have the MBA students, or certainly students across the university. But, but you yourself as a social entrepreneur, are there things that you know, research and education centers like CASE could be doing, and you hinted at one or two a little bit earlier, there are things that we should be thinking about that we could do to support social entrepreneurs and their teams to help, um, help build this field?
0: Give the wish list to Dean in the morning. Support us with management models and uh, looking because some of the existing management models don't fit especially for strategy-based uh, social enterprises so looking at management models or re-looking at some and evolving new ones looking at uh, economic models which could work and how and looking at that whole aspect we also talked about learning laboratories where social entrepreneurs people who are interested experts in the field could be there and we could have co-sharing and you know looking at it working with the teams and of course interns and that sort of but these two three main things the laboratory the management models and the economic models and that would be really really useful and want to take that and not just looking at it as a case study because like John loves to say and he should add here a case study is dead I'm quoting him from yesterday it's a butterfly on the wall pinned up but if it's a learning experience, it's much better. And I think, John, you should add over here, because that's something.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I, I think one thing that the um, uh, University Business School and the world more generally can do is be candid friends. I mean, support these people, but beat them up, challenge them, I mean, as, as, as you do to each other. But do it in, in, in a way that helps them understand
4: better what they
2: need to do next.
4: One of the things we found in some of the research we've been doing we have been interviewing 80-some folks over the last year and looking at kind of this field of, of the knowledge to support the, kind of the, how knowledge is developed and, and diffused and, and applied and so forth. One of the things that we're thinking through is how could academics, such as the folks we have here, work in, in a collaborative you know, knowledge-building partnership with <coughs> practitioners such as yourself. Um, as we've interviewed folks, we've heard folks say, well, the stuff that the academics do, that's all nice and theoretical, but we're doing the practice here. So do you have any thoughts on how, you know, an academic such as ours, center such as ours, could bridge between practice and theory in a way that we
0: support? Having been in academics for 10 years and then in the field, I think it's high time we had a marriage between the two. And it is happening in some places, but I think it's looking at and working at models together, looking at theoretical assumptions, questioning existing theoretical assumptions or models, and being able to work and I think that needs to happen more and more in the whole field so that's something for me which would be really really useful yes doing it together some practitioners they say you all just come in and do it others may want to be part of the process depending on the orientation so with someone like me who loves to read up management models as a hobby then of course I'd be more interested but there are others would say please leave us out of it so I think it's looking at both. Okay. Thank you.
2: Like, uh, in India, like, uh, especially in primary education sector, how is entrepreneurial initiative seems? Because I'm interested in that and I'm also working on that. So what is the, like, like, from your perspective, because you are already mm-hmm. an entrepreneur and you are working something related with education and education. So what is initiatives there? What is the scene?
0: Oh, the education scene in India? Or? No,
2: not it's primary education, oh. entrepreneurial things. Like I came to know that Teach for America is supporting something, Teach for India and India, and there are like so, what
0: other things are happening? I think there are several. There is uh, Pratham, which is doing a lot of work, then there is the UNICEF Child Friendly School Initiatives, which is doing a lot of work, there is Doorstep Schools. And then, the, uh, which is doing work there is means there are tons and tons of initiatives. you, I can give you a whole list of them, which are there. I think one of the best things about the nonprofit sector in India is it's really, really an entrepreneurial. It's it's a major learning ground. Every time I go back to India, I'm so excited because there's so many new things constantly happening, and it's it's very nice to see. So there's a lot which is over there to learn from, especially.